God, I wish I could think. The word is perfect, and I can't come up with it. Oh, well. You just said the word is perfect. Yeah, it is not perfect. (laughs) Um, it's drunken UX podcast time. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Michael. I'm glad you could join me this evening. Me too. I've got a new pop filter. Pop. Yeah, Aaron's pop. testing his new pop filter out. He's very proud of this. It <laughs> it's a it basically consists of a, a ring with pantyhose stretched on it. It well, that's what it looks like, but it's not literally that. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm one of your hosts. My name is Michael Feenan. I'm uh I'm I'm host of the Drunken UX podcast. I also do a thing called Real Time Overview, and um, we've got a new segment: Build Process. We like Build Process. Build process. That's a new thing. Go check that out if you haven't. Uh, let's see. This is Monday the something something. And if you go back to Monday the 16th, you can find episode one. Go go back in time. I don't know how <laughs> calendars work. I did not plan ahead for that. <laughs> well, this is Aaron Hill. I'm also a host here on Drunken UX. Congratulations. You win. Yeah, uh, if anybody wants to follow us, go check us out. On DrunkenUX.com, you can hit us up at DrunkenUX.com slash Slack. That'll get you into our little Slack channel. You can come chat with us, give us any feedback and or, hell, I don't know, whatever, I guess, right? You can also look at us on the Facebooks or on the Twitters. Facebook, Twitter. Look it through your nightmare rectangle and <laughs> find us on the Twitter. That's a new way of putting it. At slash DrunkenUX. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, let's what? see. Drink, drink, drink. Um, I Okay, so I'm going to give you a guess. Um, I don't know that you need it. Does it start with S? It does start with, with S. Crotch? I want to, I want you to describe to people how serious my scotch drinking is though, because <laughs> I've, I poured myself a glass, uh, Whoa. tonight Whoa. and I am, I am, you know, distributing the serving of my water through what, what does this look like to you? Uh, like a crystal decanter? A little crystal carafe here. From... Yeah, you know, like in the, in the movies when you have the wealthy people in their lounge and they have like the giant crystal looks almost like a vase with brown yeah. liquid in it that's what it looks like it's a, it has clear liquid in it yeah that that's just my filtered water so that i can okay open up my scotch a little bit uh <laughs> this evening i am drinking just a, a fairly plain bowmore 12 bowmore is an isla scotch um well renowned for their smokiness and hmm. um i don't know their smokiness peatiness peat uh if you ever, you know, if you if you've watched a lot of Nick Offerman or, or someone like that, you know he's a big uh, Cool Isla fan. Cool, cool Isla, I can't say it, uh, fan. Um, I think he likes Talisker a lot as well, Talisker. Um, mm-hmm. But either and one of those, Lafroy, yeah, Lagavul, and that's the one he yeah. likes. Yeah, um, Lagavul and sixteen, very good. Um, mm-hmm. These are very smoky, um, peat rich uh, scotches. Bowmore is smoky without as much of the peat flavor, and that's the that's that what gives it kind of that medicinally flavor that mm. a lot of people like. I happen to not like that a whole lot, but Bowmore is light on that, so I'm cool. That's uh, that's what I got. Um, I can't even tell what you're drinking. It's out of a glass. I'm, it's just a, a vodka tonic. It's vodka really, tonic. really hot here, and if I turn on my air conditioner, you won't hear anything but that. So I'm going with a, a cool, refreshing vodka. We got, we got to keep it short and sweet tonight, then. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm... I'm fine. I got the fan on. Just can't squeeze have some AC cucumber on. into that thing, man. Make it refreshing. Oh, that's actually a really good. Idea. I have cucumber too. See, I'm full of ideas. Oh, this is why you keep me around. <laughs> Hopefully, you can get some of those ideas on a topic tonight. I was cruising home <laughs> this evening from a board meeting, and I was thinking about some web work that I've been doing for uh, for a game site that I work on, and it occurred to me that. I have not opened an FTP program in probably two years. Same, but I have used it. Give give or take. And so I want to just ask the question, and then we can I can see who I can rile up. Is FTP dead? And <laughs> no, wait, wait. We need to rephrase it in a more clickbaity way. What killed FTP? What killed FTP? What um, killed FTP? <laughs> aside from our clickbaity <laughs> approach to the topic, no, it's uh. <laughs> You know, I was thinking about it because 
for instance, BBSs still exist. BBSs mm-hmm. are still a thing. Um, even, you know, in the old school format, or if you want to maybe get a, a slightly newer than that, like news groups or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but their usage has dramatically dropped off, right? Mm-hmm. People do not use them in the same way that they used to. And, um, you know, we have new things that have replaced them. We have forums now that right. have taken over. We we have chat groups. You know, IRC has been basically eaten, been eaten alive by Slack and Discord mm-hmm. and these kinds of systems that are, you know, arguably just pretty IRC. Um, and so I was thinking about this in terms like of both FTP. Both of them have slash me. Like in IRC, you would do slash me. Oh, yeah. And they like is doing the thing. Yeah, yeah, You can yeah. still do that. And yeah, they have all kinds of throwbacks. Yeah. Um, so... Is is this what's going to happen to FTP? Um, are we done with it? I'm gonna say no, but I I don't know. I I use I think FTP is the easiest way to do like small file transfers. You know, you need to get crap from your computer up onto your like web server. I mean, I guess you could use SCP, but FTP is just an easier way to do a big data transfer, in my opinion. I use SFTP though. Yeah. And yeah, if you're going to use FTP, you have to use SFTP anymore. Mm. I mean, it's too way, way too risky from a security standpoint to just mm. send credentials and stuff in plain text. Um, or to leave port 21 open. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> leaving it open, leaving it unsecured. These are just bad. You know, we, we did, just had an episode about security, and that's one of the things. Don't leave stuff open you don't need. Um, Debian citing both the difficulty of using FTP and usage drop-off um, last year, Debian shut down their FTP servers for their Linux distro um, on November 1st. Um, and a lot of folks kind of you know, waved the flag that that was sort of the death knell for FTP, that when Linux is saying no more, then what does the rest of the world have to say at that point? Huh. Um, I, I, having, I mean, as a, as a Linux user, I usually when I'm downloading the latest um, ISO or whatever, I usually actually use Torrent. Right. Because it's just easier. And when you think about hosting and stuff, if you're on shared hosts, it used to be okay. I'd go download mm-hmm. my WordPress zip file. I would extract it, and I would FTP mm-hmm. it up. But anymore, these are all one-click installs, right? Mm-hmm. You hit a button, you have WordPress on your site now. Um, if you're good enough to have your own you know, VPS or, or anything like that, um, you're smart enough to use SCP um, or an alternative or just there. wget wordpress.org slash... Right latest.tar.gz <laughs> like it, at that point you're good enough to know better than to just use ftp yeah. for all that plus ftp is just fucking slow yeah there's i mean there's no two ways about it like if you're trying to transfer a wordpress site of any size ftp at this stage of the game is just unwieldy um, mm-hmm. i don't know i guess it's it's i mean you know we we used to the reason we needed ftp before was to get files from a to b but right. like we have we have Dropbox now. We have um, all kinds of cloud storage solutions. You have all kinds of like web-based where you can use your browser to upload stuff. Um, we didn't have those back then. Yeah, we we have the new tool. You know, these new tools, mm-hmm. Google Drive. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, I, I remember doing this for a long time um, with uh, weather information back at a, a place I used to work. Um, Kansas, as a matter of fact, my state, uh, we just got in trouble recently because our Secretary of State, he handles the cross-check program where people can verify voter registrations against each other. Hmm. They were transferring voter registration information in plain text over FTP. And like over of, FTP? And, of course, it got found out. Oh and so God. all of this information was just out in the wild because they were not taking care of their data. So, yeah, I, I, mean, I don't... I have an answer. I, I'm not trying to stir the pot or anything. It was just kind of a, a random musing, I guess. Yeah. Is FTP I, dead? I, I, I think, like, so, like, a language, a spoken language is, is considered dead when no when no one needs to speak it anymore because they can speak something else, like Latin, for example. Um, so maybe when no one needs to use FTP anymore, even if it's still in use, then we can consider it to be, like, quotes, air quotes, dead. Yeah. That it, it's its port will serve as a testament to its existence. <laughs> so this evening we are going to be talking a little bit about functional CSS. 
Um, this is something I've, I've actually been involved in a couple of conversations recently and, and brought it up just to get people's opinions. And they stared at me with that sort of doughy eyed, doe eyed, <laughs> not doughy, doe eyed innocence of what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, okay. So clearly this isn't as well understood as I thought maybe it was. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to, we're going to chat and we're not going to give you any hard, fast, uh, ideas or, or recommendations to go out and do, but I just want to provide some awareness of what it is, what the different types are and why they exist, I think is, yeah. uh, is important. There's an article that I want to send people to, uh, it's from a list apart, uh, why we write CSS, sorry, not why we write CSS like we did in, in the nineties. And yes, it's silly. Um, I don't know when the last time was you really thought about CSS, Aaron, or uh, how much CSS you write, even, necessarily. I write quite a bit. Good. Uh, yeah. Then this this will come as a shock to you. Um, CSS3 is not officially a spec. Really? It is only it is only a partial release candidate. W3C is so dumb it, sometimes. It has been in process since 1999. Today I learned that the CSS came out in 1996. Yeah. Is it 96 or 94? Uh, December 7th, initial release, December 17th, 1996. 96, okay. 21 years ago. Oh, yeah. The initial release. I think they started working on it in 94. It became okay. uh, uh, an official spec in 96. Uh, and I believe uh, uh, not Netscape Navigator, but whatever it was before that um, Oh, uh, was the mosaic? first browser to officially support CSS. Really? But we've, you know, and I, I say that just to give it some context of CSS is a, it's a lot like HTML. We have mm-hmm. had this for a long damn time now. And even though it has changed and they've, you know, these, and the reason I said it's partially a release candidate is because CSS3 is broken up into many sort of sub documents. And mm-hmm. some of those have like reached maturity while other parts are still to this day undergoing work um and i think it's interesting to think about that because that article the the list a list apart article kind of gets in on this way that we have written it Mm. so many of us started writing css when it was just us and we were learning it we were figuring it out we were memorizing Mm. all this stuff and it was just the way you wrote css was just that you wrote css yeah. No differently from I write HTML. It was just mm-hmm. something you did. Um, and we have carried that habit over for better or worse into 2018. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to this day, I'm going to admit, I still write just hard-coded CSS for a lot of things. Sometimes it's easier. I mean, there's there's an initial overhead cost in doing compiled CSS like SAS or a different framework thing like bootstrap or something. And sometimes you just need super basic styling. And so making like a styles.css is enough. Right. And a lot of folks, you know, we, we talk, if you go to a conference, you sit down with people, you know, you hear all these folks talking about their deploy processes and their build scripts and, and their pre or preprocessors and all of this. It's worth remembering that there are a ton of developers out there that don't do any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not in their wheelhouse. They haven't learned it. They don't have anybody pushing them to learn it. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that pressure of just write the code and get it out is significantly higher than the time it would take to learn how to do something else. Mm-hmm. The way this is called sort of the monolith model, right? Uh, when you write all of your CSS into a file, it's just a giant thing. And so we we call it the monolith model. Uh, okay. Now, because it's like a monolith. Because it's like a monolith, I guess. I don't know. I didn't okay. make up the metaphor, but I'm gonna just roll with whoever did. Hashtag seems legit. <laughs> Hashtag seems legit. <laughs> uh, it basically the idea is you write all your CSS manually for the most part. Uh, you could argue even though that SAS kind of still feeds this because while SAS helps. Um, it does try to resolve some of the shortcomings of CSS that have yet to be resolved. Mm-hmm. It is still focused on outputting monolith-style CSS. 
I think, but I think the argument could be made that the, the reason that that might be advantageous is because a single CSS file is is a one one trip to the server to pull that down. Sure, yeah, I you know I wouldn't argue that. Um, but in, in what you know these techniques that we're going to talk about, that same thing is true for them as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know this idea of taking these large monolithic CSS files and minifying them down, combining them into one. Yeah. You know that's not necessarily it doesn't change like for instance the efficiency of your selectors right and right literally everybody is going to be familiar with opening up that css file to debug a selector and seeing like six different class names chained chained together right (laughs) Right. um i guess I, i guess it could be said that regardless of what approach you're taking the the minification and like single file approach like if you're not using that then it's like a it's a separate concern, and you absolutely should be minifying and single filing your 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 style sheets ultimately, um, in production at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's you know this this model also comes out of the time in 1999. You know the the way websites got built was you had a webmaster, and he was the one right. guy that did everything. And right. the argument that starts coming up when we talk about functional CSS is it's really tailored towards team think. Um, Mm. When you have lots of people trying to edit something, when you are the only person writing it, you know, it makes that sort of that that institutional memory of why classes are there, what classes do what, Mm -hmm. you know, to an extent, it remains manageable. Um, I know when I go in and change my file what it's going to be, and it's all a reflection of me at that point. There's also that sort of job security piece. If I make it big enough and obscure enough, they can't replace me. <laughs> That's the, the the Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park. Yeah. 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 Don't do that, guys. That's that is not the way to, to keep your job. Um keeping your job involves thinking better. Uh, that's what we want to help you with. But that's you know, that's definitely that idea and that's what that kind of came out of. And it's not good, it's not bad, and I wanna I guess I do wanna be very specific about that. It's it isn't anything that's just the way it worked um and the entire model was built around this idea of a world where we built websites where most people were on their own um, mm-hmm. and so the the tool and the pattern itself kind of evolved out of that so what are what are the big like popular patterns other than monolith right now the the two big ones that have been you know that that most people gravitate towards are either Tachyons or BEM, right? Okay. Um, BEM? BEM, B-E-M. Like okay. Um, not PAM. BEM. <laughs> right. That, that there's a throwback. <laughs> so what the idea is, is to create a convention. This is something, think about it like Creative Commons. Creative Commons doesn't change copyright. It just sits on top of it and creates sort of a new warehouse. And mm-hmm. functional CSS is that. It is designed to sit on top of the CSS spec and give you additional, you know, ability. It extends its. Um, to, there's a word that I'm trying to pull out of my brain right now, and it's it's not coming. Um, so what Tachyon has, or Tachyon's or Vim or any of these are trying to do is just to say, let's give you some conventions so that you have something to work with that makes sense when you come back in six months, eight months, mm-hmm. a year. When somebody else has to come in and look at what you've done. Because we have literally every web developer in their entire life has written class names that, I mean, run the gamut from, you know, white panel to, you know, (laughs) header to blog post to... What about style four? Style four, big font. (laughs) I don't know. We, you know, and there's a lot here and we'll get into it later, but there's a lot that has to do with semantics in CSS classing um, mm-hmm. and semantics is all about the, uh, the meaning we give something and that we discern yeah. from it. And sometimes our short sightedness on how sticky our semantics will be is very, very, uh, detrimental to us. So mm-hmm. tachyons, for instance, and, uh, ACSS is another one. Um, and I think, uh, stacks as well. You know, these focus on, okay. um, basically creating classes that up that, translate into individual properties so you might say okay p0 my class is p0 what is p0 
P0 is padding 0. Oh, okay. So if you have a block level element, you put P0 on it, you can tell immediately that you're going to have padding 0. Is this where it's like um, RTL, RTR, like round top left, round top right? It can be. Um, okay. And I'm not that gonna... would be an example of, of one. Yeah. Um, the, the tachyon pattern tends to be very focused on on the properties themselves. Um, so like RTL would be a, you know, an amalgamation, a combination Mm -hmm. of several properties. Um, that would be more like an atomic CSS rule, um, where you're making a rule yet. It requires three properties to completely execute. Um, I guess it doesn't technically because you can combine, uh, atomic CSS is a CSS. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's all about, you know, making your, CSS units as small as humanly possible. CSS by its nature is is globally scoped. If I create it, it's going to apply to everything and then some. And okay, so how is this... If you make... Let's say they make a tachyon called red and it's color colon red. How is that different than just using a style of attribute? For one, it's about specificity. Um, okay. There is... And I'll share it in the, in the show notes... Um, have you ever manually calculated CSS specificity? Can you be more specific? There, there is an algorithm that runs <laughs> when, when rules are scanned by the browser engine. Mm-hmm. It goes through every single one of those selectors that you have in your CSS and scores them based on. Oh, okay. Is is there a style attribute on the element? Is it, does it have an ID? Does it have classes, pseudo elements, and is it just an element or uh, a, a a pseudo? Uh, pseudo selector of the element um i believe right and so it scores all those by counting up how many of them apply and then it's got a little waterfall scoring that it that it goes through and it's it's right. why you can have 12 classes on an element but that 12 class uh rule can be overruled by one id right or we had bang important or something yeah because yeah yeah and, and uh the, the bang important basically adds an additional one to the front mm-hmm. end of that score for the most part right. is, is sort of how it's interpreted. Um, okay. So the difference here is that a, you, you move that specificity down a level. Mm-hmm. Um, and the real money in this is, uh, we'll talk here in a bit about prototyping and being able to rapidly go in and build something, throw a few classes on it and be good to go. And instead of having okay. to type out entire rule sets, you're just slapping quick classes on. Because, like I say, padding zero can be distilled down to P0 in a tachyon. Right. Um, and you can make, you know, you get a P5 or whatever, you know, five pixels or five RAM or whatever your your unit of measure is. Okay. So that's it. Uh, tachyons were created by um, Adam Morris. He What he was doing was he was looking into how to make CSS paint faster. And so he was doing a bunch of research and came into some work that other folks were doing and they were m- literally measuring their paint speed when they would render out new CSS. And oh. he, he took this methodology uh, with his test engine and started breaking down his tool set into a prototyping framework that he could use that would be super, super fast. Uh, and So it's a, it, it renders faster. Right. And so when he was done, that's what he had. He had the start of what became Tachyon. If you want to hear him talk about it go check out episode 272 of changelog the changelog podcast um he does an interview there where he talks about how he hmm. got started with this why it you know became a thing because i don't you know i personally i don't like tachyons and it's nothing against the framework i just don't like the semantics as it were of mm-hmm. it um and he, he has a, a great quote in it that he's he says something to, something to the effect of i don't trust anybody who looks at it the first time and likes it <laughs> because it does and, as a general rule <laughs> and this is true for tachyons it's true for bam um you know it, it well bam not so much i guess but tachyons definitely requires you to add a lot of classes like you will have html elements that will have six seven classes on them to accomplish mm-hmm. yeah i've seen those want. um and you know there's there's a lot of argument to be made that you're oh you know that overclassing just makes your html sloppy makes it harder to manage but at the end of the day, it is about performance from that mm-hmm. that approach. And he has the numbers to show that that methodology produces quicker painting. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so if you if you care about performance, that can be a really uh, valuable resource to move towards. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. I didn't consider that the the rendering speed of the page would be a factor in that. Yeah. Well, and th- you know that's because the specificity ranking um, when you start when the browser has to go through that that's a heavy transaction for the browser to mm-hmm. crunch that CSS file, measure all of those values, and then weight them against each other to figure out which ones to apply. Um, yeah. You know, it's it reminds me there's an old adage, and I I don't remember I. I remember talking about it when I was still an electrical engineering major in college that um, the way we write programming today is incredibly inefficient because the people who are doing the programming never had to like program on, you know, 8088 chips and things like that. Right. That, where you had to worry about memory allocation. Yeah, where that. every bit yeah. of memory had to be, you know, signed off and and known what it's being used for and garbage collected when it's done. And so this we have the, you know, what is it? It's it's the curse of abundance that we have all of mm-hmm. this overhead for use. We stop caring about performance as much. Or may, or it could be looked at a different way that maybe because we have all this abundant resources now it frees us up to think about things in a different way and let us focus and prioritize other things instead of what we had to focus on before. Yeah, and there's there's an argument to be made, you know, that the milliseconds you're saving in paint time aren't valuable. Uh, yeah. You know, there's certainly research that would say otherwise that every millisecond matters, but, um, you know, all every millisecond is not created equal, for instance. You know, a, a CSS paint time doesn't necessarily render content or a page unusable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that a change in the look as it's rendering is going to be detrimental in a given space. Um, those things need to be weighed against each other more. Let me float something to you here. So, so if this is a performance issue, we're basically trading off um, ma- maintainable looking code because tachyons, like I've seen them, they aren't intuitive to look at. I mean, you can decode it when you read through them and everything, but like just looking at it alone, it's not like a, a flash, you know, like it doesn't just instantly click. So if this is a performance concern, much like minifying and, you know, compiling down your CSS, shouldn't this be like, shouldn't we have a script that goes through and like, like when you're writing something for production, it changes your, your CSS stylings to be using tachyons? Well, it, it sounds like what you're, kind of alluding to are CSS modules, um, which is, Hmm. I think, very much kind of getting at what you're implying, which is figure out all the things you want to use, then combine them into one, and then make it singly unique so that you have the lowest specificity possible, but it's still entirely unique specificity. Well, no, what what I'm talking about is, is that, you know, like writing CSS that's readable makes maintaining the code easier and lower cognitive load which matters for developers but performance wise we wanted to render more quickly that's the thing though right because semantics are entirely subjective so Mm -hmm. if you are the developer who is maintaining it those Mm -hmm. tachyons make absolute perfect sense to you and yeah i guess so and do you honestly care about the rando who comes by your site and does a view source and can't interpret that well so that gets back to the earlier point though of having a a single developer doing the css the webmaster versus having a team of developers doing the css you know what i mean well but again if it's a methodology your entire team has adopted Mm -hmm. then there's never a question about what the header class meant or something you know along those lines yeah i guess so the the alternative to this is kind of what bem gets at which is the same thing it is a a convention scheme for CSS, but it still relies on inherency. Um, and it sta- BEM is an acronym for block element modifier. Blapid eye movement? It, no, no. You've had too much to drink, sir. I'm going to take your vodka away from you. Um, the the idea Block here, element modifier. Block element modifier. So, and okay. think of it exactly like it sounds. A block might be, you know, your, your blog content. You know, blog. Okay. Call it blog. It's the blog sure. block. And then your element might be your header. And then okay. maybe on some posts you have a featured header. 
And so okay. you would end up with the the blog block class. Mm-hmm. Then you would have blog dash dash header or underscore underscore header, depending on the pattern you use. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have underscore underscore header dash featured. Um, okay. With the idea that each one of these, A, they're trying to retain semantics so that you can look at it and mm-hmm. see, oh, this is a blog header. Got it. It okay. will only ever be scoped as a blog header. If we have to right. do the same thing somewhere else, it's not going to be called this. Um, we okay. just have to duplicate that. Um, but the idea being that you retain some semantics, you retain some cascade, but you have a naming scheme that means something. So that when you go back again mm-hmm. six months, eight months later, you can tell exactly what it is. And you know if you change it, you know exactly how it's going to impact things. Whereas with tachyons, you have uh, rules as classes and now people can mm-hmm. disagree with me on that if they want to go by the site let me know and, and tell me what you think but that's that's how i have interpreted it is they are rules set up as classes and when you want to change your page then you just change the class and you know mm-hmm. you know you know how that's going to impact things and how it's going to affect things with bem what you end up having are units of rules that if you want to change the way your blog header looks you mm-hmm. change the css rather than the classes on the page but you know for a fact that your changes right. will be scoped to only that element. When I think about the separation of concerns on maintaining a website, you know, you have the, you know, you have the the designer people, and you have the the content management people, and you have the developers. Um. Typically, the the design people are the ones that'd be making design changes like that, and so BAM would be well suited for that kind of arrangement. And I've looked at. Tachyons and BEM before, and I, I don't like Tachyons. I don't hate BEM. Um, mm-hmm. I'm starting to see a lot more value in it the the more work I do. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, both of these are basically trying to resolve that issue of when you have a monolith uh, model CSS file, the risks of changing that file increase exponentially the more lines you add to it. Um, and you get into this habit of rather than changing old CSS or removing mm-hmm. unused CSS, you just keep adding CSS to it. <laughs> so the, the tail of your yeah, file keeps growing, fair. keeps growing. Um, and even if you're using like SAS and, and breaking stuff into chunks and all of that, you still have that problem of, crap, I changed the blog header, but for some reason the, the footer text changed. You know, yeah. you get leakage, you get style leakage all over the place. If that's happening, though, you're you're probably not, you're probably not classing your elements correctly. I that mean, that would be, and and again, I'm probably thinking about this as if it was the 1990s still. So, I guess take that with the. I just I just think it's a consequence, you know, because <laughs> what you know, you, there's a million ways you could end up reusing a class name that you've just forgotten that you used. Um, mm. Or, you know, you've just got, again, specificity that is wonky that you haven't mm. sat down and done the actual math on because nobody does that. Nobody sits down mm. and does the actual math on their selector specificity. They just keep right. trying to add classes or elements to the selector until they can get it to to overrule it uh, without using the, the important <laughs> declaration, hopefully. Right. Um, right. So tachyons and BEM and these approaches, and, and I mean, there are, there are a lot of others. You've got Bass CSS, Tailwind, um, object-oriented CSS, Smacks. You know, these are all trying to answer that question of how do we develop CSS? How do we write good CSS that is modular, that is dry, don't repeat yourself, and mm. that can be maintained over time, particularly by different people? Uh, yeah. Because that's really... The big selling point is when you have a convention, then you can convey semantics. Yeah. And okay. It, you know, it's it, when you talk about monolith model, your semantics are basically, you know, whatever the flavor of the day is, because you know that you're going to look at that file and you're going to see like 14 different approaches to how you name things. <laughs> God, pushing legacy projects. <laughs> and I mean, that's really why this is a need, right? Because people do stupid things with CSS. Oh my God! Yes, not intentionally always, but you know it's like any well, coding. Yeah. You, when you start writing code, you suck at it. You get better as time yeah. goes on. Same thing for everybody else. And if you inherit stuff, you know, people do stupid things. So, 
All right, so I got I got three things for stupid CSS that I want to mention here. I'm gonna get on the bully pulpit. Um, people using a class when they should be using ID. So if you have an element or a class that's only going to be used on one thing on your page ever, using it as a class instead of making an ID, because ID conveys this idea that this is only going to be used here. So like top nav, ID equals top nav, make the CSS hash top nav instead of dot top nav. Know what I mean? I know what you mean. I'm going to disagree yeah. with you. All right, let me hear it. No, I mean, there's the only thing that I have to say about it is it's just up to what convention you use. I suppose, but ID I, I think selectors it's a are intensive. Thing. You know, from a JavaScript yeah. standpoint, if you're doing anything there, you try to stay away from ID selectors because they're, they can be significantly heavier than class selectors. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, again, they're looking for a higher level of specificity, which requires it to comb through the code. Um, yeah. I mean, it's. It's just a convention issue. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to say that you should or shouldn't use a class or an ID necessarily, but... You should. Aaron says you should, so... <laughs> um, another one is using CSS classes when there is a perfectly functional equivalent HTML tag, such as... I, I have seen this. I've seen a, an address class. I have seen a bold class, which did font weight bold. Yeah. I've seen... Um, H1... I've seen an H1. Yes, the the uh, a list apart article has an Amazon style sheet thing, which has a dot H1 class instead of using the H1 tag. It's like you can style the, the the HTML tags directly in your CSS. You don't need to use a class or an ID or anything. Just define the selector as the HTML tag. Yeah, and, and then put the styles on. And here's a good example though too of either Tachyons or BEM fixes that exact problem that you're not trying to mm. fake an element style. Oh yeah. Instead you would mm-hmm. just say, you know what, if this is an H3 that we want to look a certain way, then it's just mm-hmm. the blog or, you know, the, the, the product heading modified large, you know, whatever the, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that H1 class had that was important to the H1, you just make yeah. that, you know, you have your, your product H3 and then whatever that should look like. And then if you need it to look like an H1, then you just call it dash dash or dash large. Right. Something along yes, those exactly. lines. And then it's perfectly scoped to that element. Right. Um, I, I also dislike when classes are used only for one thing, when a class specifically is used rather than using an ID selector. This is a convention thing. I'll, I'll give you that. But um, I just, I CSS is such an elegant, like the, the way the cascades apply and the layering and like really nicely done CSS is really awesome and it's like easy to read and relatively easy to maintain and, and kind of comb through. Um, and, you know, and having semantic HTML is the same thing. It's really easy to read and you can clearly see the intent of what everything is there. And it, it's just annoying when, when, when that doesn't happen and that just like irks me, yeah. you know, like, but and, you know, it comes out of how long we've been doing it because basically mm-hmm. what Tachyon and BAM, to an extent, are trying to do is throw away the C in CSS. Yeah. They're, they're basically saying bad. the cascading part of style sheets is what the problem is. The reason that we've had to figure out better ways to maintain it is because mm-hmm. it's so easy for it to screw stuff up over time. Uh, now, I would, I would, I would concede that the cascading nature of that was because we didn't have compiled CSS. Right. And so cascades allowed you to write your styles overall because you could infer styles from uh, parent cascading points. Um, but maybe that's not necessary anymore because we have stats yeah. in the same way that maybe you don't need FTP anymore. And and that's kind of the idea, I think, is... Uh, Again, I, I started the show by talking about CSS3, level 3, started mm-hmm. in 1999, guys. We're 20 years into this thing. Wait, what? CSS3 started? Yes, CSS3. Seriously? What started its draft state in 1999, and it's still not done. The fuck? So that just <laughs> is, you know, that just shows, yeah, I think it made perfect sense then. Um, and I think now we're kind of seeing this through a different approach different tools different patterns and so we're trying to find conventions that give css classing more purpose and that Hmm. are trying to define it from a scope standpoint 
Um, mm-hmm. So that when you change anything, whether you change properties on CSS or you change the classes on elements, you can predict and know exactly what's going to happen when you change that. I could feel that. That's that's the idea. Guys, I'm going to go fill my glass up. I'm going to get some more of this delicious Bowmore. Um, we're going to come back and talk about how you can be better at this and how it, whether you like functional CSS or not. You know, ways that we can look at CSS and, and be better with it and, and give it meaning and make it more usable, more maintainable. Can we do that? I, like I can do that. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Are you trying to build a case around an interactive map for your school, city, or business? NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. Their team of professional cartographers specialize in map illustrations and are ready to design a rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all your users' devices with responsive maps that scale and blend in seamlessly with your website. Visit them online to request a demo at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Hey guys, I'm Michael Feenan, and you're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm starting off the second half a whole lot more interjecting than the first, because I don't know why, but you deserve better, so that's what you're going to get. And this is Aaron Hill here. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Feenan, and we are much more energetic this time. Whoa. The second half. I don't know what that was, man. <laughs> I also, I'm switching. I'm not. I, I ran out of tonic, and so I'm, I'm over to mescal now. Made y'all antsy oh. in your pantsy, man. We're not. It's not that we're not energetic. It's that we got a we got a good mellow vibe going, and I like that. Mm-hmm. It's like smooth jazz. Okay, so we're talking about CSS, right? And I want to talk about now how we use these ideas. And I, again, I don't care whether you want to check out tachyons i don't care if you want to check out bem i don't care if you want to try atomic css whatever tickles your fancy go for it check it out and see which one makes sense to you but what i want to talk about is how we can fold these conventions into our process to make our css Mm -hmm. better for us and for everybody so Mm -hmm. as developers one of the things that we always try to do when we're writing css of any kind is that we're trying to kind of add semantic sanity to what has otherwise been a really unstructured approach to the way that we, you know, create these design definitions, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned before, when you're, when you're doing monolith CSS, you go through and you look at the classes that you wrote last week versus three months ago versus six months ago. You know, the the semantics move a lot. And like you were talking about, well, you, you look at a page with tachyons and it's hard to kind of grok what's going on there immediately. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that some of those it it's whether or not the semantics matter outside of the person writing it and can be mm-hmm. picked up later and by using those kinds of patterns you know it's it's a lot if you stop and think about something like a foundation for instance mm-hmm. um you know foundation Wait, i wouldn't call you mean zerb zerb foundation yeah or do you mean okay yeah, yeah. the the css framework you know they have their whole css uh, uh library that you can use now not foundational CSS, you know that it is a it is a genuine framework, um, but there is a value that comes with knowing. Oh well, they're using foundation six point four point two, so right. I can go look up those documentation and know exactly what the deal was. And the same I think is true for things like you know BEM and tachyons and all of these. That if you know you're using it, even if you don't inherently know tachyons patterns, you can go mm-hmm. look it up real fast, and it makes a whole lot of sense as soon as you've seen it. Um, And so semantics, you know, are kind of defined in that moment. Um, And that's what, you know, everybody, you know, whether Adam Morris, uh, any of these other folks who have been kind enough to bless us with all of these tools at our disposal, they're all trying to give us better resources to know what we're looking at later. Um, And one of the other big benefits it gives us is in the process of prototyping things. Um, there's a lot of emphasis that goes into, you know, sort of live prototyping of, of tools and, and um, of apps and, and websites and everything, being able to sit down if you work agile, being able to sit down and go over something with somebody and they say, well, can we make that bigger? And you say, yeah, I've been FS3. Make it pop more. Make it pop more. <laughs> uh, I don't know which CSS cl- or, or property that is, but yeah, go for it. 
But the idea <laughs> is that if you know those semantics ahead of time, um, and as long as it's not something totally off the beaten path that you haven't already planned for, then you, mm-hmm. you know one of two things. A, you can either apply a quick class that will in real time be able to show you exactly what you expect to see, or you can go change the class, like in the case of BEM, and know that you're only going to change the thing that you're looking right at. And it's not going to leak anywhere. It's not going to show up somewhere you didn't expect it to be. Um, yeah. And that's that's a huge value, I think, in terms of uh, that process, as opposed to you know the sort of classic live prototyping process of I open up Chrome Inspector, <laughs> get into DevTools, and I almost got him to spit Mescal out. <laughs> that would have been a great site. Uh, but you sit there and you sort of live change the CSS in DevTools, which, you know, let's face it, that's a that's a difficult process to reproduce. I think you're going to have to do that regardless of what framework is being used. <laughs> Just par for the course. Um, it also then addresses part of that maintainability aspect. I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, you know, Monolith comes out of this idea that one person tended to maintain it. But when... 20 devs are all touching the same CSS file, you know, you need a spec. You need to all know that you're speaking the same language in here because odds are you have to edit Mm -hmm. classes that somebody else wrote. And if you can't trust what the impact of that's going to be, it makes that editing process significantly more difficult. I think this is um, a big part of this is consistency. Whatever whatever approach or framework you choose to use, like remaining consistent with that. Right. That was one of the big problems with, you know, the early, the early years of CSS was that you might start your CSS doing one way, but then you have to make like that one really quick fix because the stakeholder is like, Oh, well, can you make this like red and flashing? And you're like, Oh, and you have this class called stupid and you make it red and flashing. And and then that breaks your consistency of, of, how you're doing your style sheets. That explains why they named all those classes Michael years ago. (laughs) The maintainability problem is, I mean, it's significant, especially when you go like, and I've, I have been on literally both sides of this. When I uh, was the director of web marketing at Pitt state, I did everything. I had full control over a 30,000 page website the design, the files that, you know, created all of that. And that's a lot of power for one person to have. Now I'm part of a team where we are all working together and routinely go in and out of each other's work. And that's, it has let, it has led me to believe that something like BEM would be incredibly beneficial um, for that very Mm -hmm. reason. Also partly because of how SAS can factor in. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a second, but I want to, when we talk about working with other people, um, Mm -hmm. when you're the lone developer, you are the pattern library. Yeah. You know, the design for better or for worse. worse. (laughs) Generally, you're the person who knows, like when you look at your code, I hope you know what it did. Um, you know, that's never true. Um, but when you work with other people, especially if you work with at anywhere where you bring in outside designers and outside marketing Mm -hmm. people, um, having reference points becomes really important. And so looking into tools, because it could be that your biggest CSS problem is just a documentation problem. And if that's the case, look into something like a pattern lab or an Astrum that can step in there. I haven't heard of either of those before today, and I looked at them, and those are both super cool. I wish I could come through this microphone and slap you. I don't do a Jeez. lot of CSS stuff. I, I do like a little bit here and there, but um, usually it's just cleaning up bad CSS. So Pattern Lab is a framework that came out of work from Brad Frost. Um, you know, he's the dude that kind of came up with the atomic design mentality. So thinking about mm-hmm. things in terms of you know atoms and molecules and organisms and all this. Uh, Dave mm-hmm. Olson, a friend of mine from West Virginia University, he's had a big hand in, in building that tool as well. Um, Astrum is same kind of tool, just a different, you know, different framework. Um, but both of them are built around this idea of writing small chunks of code and, and with, you know, whatever build process you use or, or, or whatnot, being able to output that into a tool that will automatically generate 
a list of all of your classes and what they look like with little code snippet examples. Oh, so it generates a kitchen sink, yes, it basically. Gener- yes, exactly. Yeah. It generates a kitchen sink. That is awesome. And so it forces you to think very atomically minded because you have to break mm-hmm. these things up as you use them. And then if you change them, you have to consider the ways that it's going to impact the other things that you're using. I will say uh, at a previous gig, I we had a redesign and the designer delivered. I, I'm pretty sure it was BEM. One of the redesigns was BEM based. And it was the first time I had seen it. And um, it was weird at first. But ultimately, when we had to do maintenance over time, it was a lot easier because then you always knew which SAS models, SAS modules to look into. Right. And um, we use Astrum. And we had a kitchen sink page. The kitchen sink page is the shit. <laughs> I, if you if you don't have one, you're missing out. Like, you got to get up on yeah, that. Yeah, we use Astrum. Make a kitchen sink ours. page. Um, mm-hmm. And we're still working on kind of resolving some of this because while we do have a build process, our approach to CSS is very much still monolith because we still are just outputting one giant file that, yeah, it's minified and all of that, but there is no scheme to it. There is no convention applied mm-hmm. to it. So uh, Astrum has been a big help in at least making us think about our units better and understanding the impact changing them has. Um, yeah. But you're right. SAS is pretty much the solution here. Um, regardless of what you use. You want to use Tachyons, you want to use yeah. BEM, you want to use OOCSS, you want to use Stacks, whatever. Um any of those are uh, are acceptable at that point because you can bolt them in. They're just a convention. I said stacks, smacks is what I meant. Um, <laughs> you can bolt them in as a convention to whatever you're doing. And so BEM, and I like to think of BEM this way because from a, a SAS standpoint, SAS is really good at letting you nest selectors. Mm-hmm. And that's literally what BEM is basically doing block element if, modifier for you listeners who've never used sas before have you ever had those times when you wish you had variables in css well now you can with sas it's amazing i was really concerned this was going to turn into a valtrex commercial <laughs> we're gonna show someone riding on a horse weird dude <laughs> Oh, what's in this? this but uh, the, the this idea of what SAS lets you do then is structure your code in accordance with your convention and then maintain that. And like Aaron had already pointed out, you can easily cut up your SAS file into different modules that are distinct. Mm-hmm. And so you can do that based, you know, per block, for instance. Um, and so you mm-hmm. can have all of your news blocks in one area, all of your blog blocks in another area, all of your product blocks in a third. And then... Have those have the elements nested inside of that as uh, ampersand selectors, and the same mm-hmm. thing then with modifiers. And it can build out then the actual CSS file that will drive all of those selectors, and it will automatically compile them with the right specificity and the right cascade. That's huge. If you ever have the if you ever have the pleasure of looking at a like a really well done SAS like tree breakdown, it's pretty awesome. Like you know the modules will be things like. Um, some projects that I'm working on right now, we have one for buttons, we have one for typography, we have one for headers. Um, all these different, it's kind of componentized. Um, it just makes it really easy because then you know, I have to make a change to a button class. You know where you have right. to look. It's in that one file and there's maybe 100 lines Semantics. you have to go through. Yeah. I mean, and that's really the thing because it's it has nothing to do with the technical limitation. It's all mm-hmm. about the convention that you want to use. So just make sure to wrap your convention in a smart tool. Um, And your world gets light years easier at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And now up to this point too, you know, we talk about this. A lot of it bears uh, weight on your build process. You know, you have to have something that runs a preprocessor and compiles your SAS and spits out a file that you can upload to your server. And if you want to have it minified and things like that. Um, I know a lot of developers aren't comfortable with that. Um, SAS is easy to learn. Like if, if if you figure like CSS on a scale of one to 10 is maybe a three, you know, a four, if you want to get into like the really advanced, like CSS animation stuff and all of that. Right. SAS adds like one point of difficulty above that. 
I, I would agree um, with that. It's it's different. It, it has a maybe a higher ceiling in terms of like when you start getting into mix-ins and functions and all of this that you can do. Um, you could learn it to a very serviceable level in a yeah, week. Oh, it, I think in less than that yeah. even. Um, easily. Easily, easily. Um, yeah. And if you take that time and learn a little bit of SAS, um, there is a uh, GUI-based tool called Koala. Um, it's koala-app.com. And it gives you – it works on Mac. It works on Linux. It works on Windows. Um, mm-hmm. And it gives you a, a GUI-based tool that you can drag a SAS file into and – it will give you some little checkboxes and real easily allow you to compile your file into a finished or your files into one single and it can minify them and it can do, you know, it can take out all the white space, all the comments, whatever you want. And it'll do it to JavaScript and stuff as well uh, for what it's worth. That's awesome. Um, but if you aren't comfortable with that command line level build process, if you haven't used NPM or Node, you know, if you don't know what Yarn is, um, that's okay. Go check out this tool, and it still it gives you the ability to at least get into that stuff with a very low cognitive impact. Basically, if if you do like, if you are like a command line jockey, um, but you don't want to get into the npm and everything, um, Compass is a really awesome tool. Yeah. You can run Compass. Um, it's Compass dash dash watch, and you just specify wherever your SAS lives, and then it's just constantly recompiling it. Anytime you save one of the files, it, so like you can have your uh, when you're doing development, it makes it a lot faster because you don't have to keep going over and recompiling. Doesn't it. Compass come natively installed on Mac now? Doesn't it? Probably. I, I may be remembering that. I, I I have a Mac. I'm not a Mac guy though. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> so. I, I know it's it's easy to find and it's easy to install and um, it's it's a really handy tool and it's great when you're first learning SAS because then you can see your changes right away. Yeah. Now, if you're a real high level person and you want to take this to the next level, you know this is all about grinding CSS scope down, right? We said the problem mm-hmm. is CSS has a global scope; it can leak anywhere and everywhere. Um, these conventions mm-hmm. are designed to narrow the scope so that it has very limited ability to get out anywhere um there is an article over at css tricks um all about css modules this is sort of the the new hotness and i I likened it to that meme um the one where you see like it's it's a bunch (laughs) of like um ethereal heads and they get progressively bigger and brighter as the concept they're addressing gets bigger um it's galaxy galaxy brain Brain. i don't know i'm not a kid that knows these things um (laughs) It, <laughs> or no, sorry, expanding brain, according to Know Your okay. Meme. But I've also seen it as Galaxy Brain. The uh, CSS modules is the top of this meme. Um, <laughs> so it's all about perfectly local scope, and it's entirely programmatic and generated. So as you write, you you write your CSS module as a it's a JavaScript file. You include your HTML markup. You include a human readable class name in it and you then give it whatever classes you'll have you have a css file that then defines the various uh styling and things that are applied to it and when you run your build script it reads this all together it spits out the html files and it generates purely unique classes for each one of your css modules it, oh, it's a very okay. it's, it actually in the the example they give follows a BEM model, um, yeah. So it has like the app name as the block and then the element that it's so on. This is, yeah, that you're exactly right. This is the thing that when I mentioned earlier about having that being done at um, like compile right. time for production. And then the, yeah. the last okay. thing it applies is like a random string. So yeah. every element, even though the CSS itself in your application can be reused. The yeah. compiled CSS is purely unique for every single one of those classes. Um, and I know folks will complain about that. Um, and I uh, don't necessarily disagree that, yeah, then everything has to have a class. You've completely thrown the C out of the CSS. You're bloating the size of your CSS file. Um, and they aren't wrong, mm-hmm. but the argument goes back to what Adam Morse talked about which is that mm-hmm. you are improving your paint speeds this way. 
And so yeah. there's there's some math here that I have not done, and I would be interested to see somebody do if they haven't already, which is, is the trade-off in file size better than the paint speed or not? Um, yes. My guess would be bandwidth that, is in abundance. My, my guess would be that you know bandwidth is is cheap and fast, and that the paint speed yeah. is a better trade-off. Um, yeah, but that's the idea anyway. I I think that uh, like I said earlier, if, if you can do this at compile time and it's improving the performance, I think it's great. And so what if it makes the file bigger? Because you're because you're. The maintain the the part that's important with the naming, like the cascading and all that, that's all to help developers maintain it better. But when it gets to the user, all they need is it for it to be fast. And so if this translates one into the other, that's awesome. Yeah. That is totally galaxy brain. CSS modules yeah. are definitely not for the faint of heart. Um, I mean, it's it's yeah. you know it's an approach that's very familiar for like uh, React or Angular developers. But mm. you know, if you are just doing normal, you know, plain old website development or WordPress theme development or something like that, um, it's probably a bit large in terms of you know the the <laughs> digestibility of, of getting into it. But um, it it definitely has it takes this convention. It takes this idea of functional CSS. And I think that it brings it to like sort of the the ultimate conclusion of what it can be in terms of perfectly localized uh, zero scope creep CSS classes, but still maintaining so, reusability. A long time ago, um, the PageRank algorithm for Google would factor in the markup that was around links when it was figuring out the uh, the context or the the semantic nature of the link. Um, do you know if CSS is ever factored in with that? Like, do they ever look at like what classes are applied? Um, I mean, to my knowledge, I don't think the class names end up applying unless they are part of a micro format that's wrapped around okay. it. Um, now the properties can mm-hmm. like, like okay. I, it knows if you've got display none, for instance, it can right. check positioning of elements um, that right. can factor in, but I don't think the the names themselves would. And okay. like with CSS modules, at least, and and BEM, um, not so much tachyons, they still do maintain a degree of semantic wording in those classes. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't thrown the baby out right. with the bathwater, so to speak, uh, in that way. So. Um, it's it's definitely something, and that'd be an interesting thing to see. My guess is that. Um, you know, BEM's, BEM and Tachyon um, are not unknown. Google knows these are things. They know they exist. My guess is they have ways of even detecting that pattern if that is the case. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of those things. I, I'm going to just kind of hedge my bets that they are smart, smart people and can already <laughs> – they, they were accounting for that before we even thought about it probably. Uh, yeah, probably so. <laughs> So, is that all we got? I feel like that's all we got. I think that's all we got. Any advice you want to leave people with? <laughs> don't don't write bad CSS. Don't write bad CSS, please. Guys. Go look at Tachyons. Go look at BAM. Go look at any of these uh, conventions and, and functional CSS patterns. Let us know what you think about them and which ones, you know, are you using any of them for that matter? Mm-hmm. Um, that's something else that... Uh, I probably should have seen if I'm sure somebody's done a survey on that to see kind of what's what's winning out in the in the world of front end development. But if you're ever calling any of your classes style and then a number, just don't don't do that. <laughs> have, <laughs> just please have some kind of semantic value, right? That's that's right. the the takeaway. No matter what you use, what style you use, what what convention you use. Leave some kind of semantic breadcrumbs behind. And be consistent. Be consistent. Be consistent. Um, And don't, you know, go back and audit stuff regularly because part of the reason we have this problem is because we don't delete CSS. We never, we we think Mm -hmm. about it. We'll go back in six months and edit the CSS file and get rid of stuff. No, we don't. Nobody Mm -hmm. does that. Um, It's it's brutal. Um, And then we have unintended consequences because that selector was too too broad for some reason so the drunken ux podcast is brought to you by our friends at new cloud 
Nucloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, Nucloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Well, thanks for listening to us, everybody. I'm glad you came here and, and listened to us rant about functional CSS. I don't know that this was a rant necessarily, I guess, but... Um, I ranted a tiny just bit. Just a chat. Just a, just a tiny bit. Just a chat yeah. about functional CSS. That's what this was. So thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Um, and uh, guys, you're awesome. I respect you. Make sure you connect with us with our awesome on the Facebooks and the Twitters slash UX. Or come chat with us on Slack and tell us how wrong we are about whatever CSS framework you like right now. No doubt I got something wrong in there. (laughs) DrunkenUX.com slash Slack slash slash Slack. The Drunken UX is is strong with this one. Uh, (laughs) Guys, be sure to check us out on Wednesday. We'll be coming up with another episode of Real-Time Overview. Also... For those of you in the Boston area, I will be at an event apart uh, this week. So if you are up in that area and want to stop in and say hi, please, please poke me in the side and and wave in my face. That would be awesome. Also, also, be sure to check out our new show. Build Process. Check out Build Process. Paul Gilzow joined us for our first episode. We chat about what it means to do web development, how he got into it, what advice he has for folks. And we will be bringing an episode of that to you about once a month as we see fit. I think, I think yes. that's the idea anyway. We'll have to see how many we can get recorded. See how many we can get recorded. <laughs> a whole lot based on the list that I've been putting together. <laughs> Maybe backlogged a bit in 2019 on that one, but I guess there's no such thing as too prepared. <laughs> all I can say then is until next time, I want you all to keep your personas close and your users closer. Yeah, man.